This is In Her Boots from Moses, and I'm Tiffany Lachey. Think of being bootless as being faced with what seems to be insurmountable barriers. This could be anything from healing from generational trauma, from struggling with lack of access to land and resources, to navigating systemic racism and facing white supremacy. Over the next six episodes, we'll share stories and acknowledge these struggles, but we will also celebrate the success, tenacity, the resiliency, and the creativity of Black, Indigenous, Hmong, Latinx, and other women of color. I'm here today in St. Paul, Minnesota, which is land of the Dakota people. European settlers perpetuated genocide against the First Nations people of the Americas, killing over 90% of the population. That's over 100 million people, um, displacing those who did survive, intentionally spreading disease, stealing their land, stealing their children, um, forcing them into ethnic cleansing, forcing women into sterilization, the U.S. government and the Supreme Court actually upheld this doctrine of discovery, which meant that Native American tribes lost all right to their land upon discovery by Europeans. Um, laws such as the Indian Removal Act legalized the forced removal of indigenous people off their land. Millions died of hunger and disease and were considered unhuman savages. Um, there was a very specific and effective technique that was perfected by missionaries in the West that was to cause serious bodily or mental harm to indigenous people, to make them sick, to give them plagues, to eliminate them by destroying their resources and their food ways to take away their ability to hunt, to take away their ability to perform ritual, to take away everything until life had no meaning. So racism and injustice are built into the DNA of uh, the systems here in America. Our agricultural system, our food system, our policing system, our healthcare system. Um, and... Colonization and, and agriculture in general began with this false heroic vision. Um, for many farmers today, um, that's still their identity and their motivation. This notion that this land is to be made profitable um, by any means necessary, at any cost, uh, in the name of greed, power, white supremacy, violence, terror, racial superiority. Many people have fought um, very long and hard to control and to continue this narrative. But there are also many people out there fighting to reclaim their ancestral indigenous practices and fighting to restore indigenous communal sufficiency. I get to chat with one of those people today. Danny Paratas is a mother, a water protector, 
advocate for food sovereignty and sustainable agriculture. She's everything. Um, Danny works with organizations such as Harvest Nation and the Land Access Alliance. And we talked a little bit about what it's like healing from intergenerational trauma. And we also discuss challenges and barriers that she's facing both individually and collectively. Onamini Zagiagan and Dujaba. So I'm from the Lake of the Sunset Glow, Lake Vermilion. And the Lake Vermilion Reservation is across the bay from a town called Tower, Minnesota. So that's a little bit closer than Ely. Ely, um, I just emailed a friend of mine who's from Ely and works there. And one of her programs, she was saying, you know, they haven't gone back to look at, you know, the colonization side of things of where they're at. <laughs> um, so wanted some input. And I was saying how my grandma, my grandma's name is uh, Phyllis Boger, and her maternal and paternal uh, grandmas were from the Ely area. So I always heard that um, her grandma, her paternal grandma um, was from Basswood Lake in Ely and then her maternal, or no, I had it opposite, sorry. Maternal's from Basswood and paternal from White Iron. And I never heard the story of, you know, even though we're from Ely area, um, how did we come to live on the reservation? Um, my grandpa was also born on an island in, um, called Indian Island in Burntside Lake, right near Ely. And I never heard the story. Oh, yeah, so they were born there. But wait, Grandma, uh, how did we get here? Um, why, why do you think you've never heard that story? Because it's probably a very, very sad one. Right. I, exactly. And so that, that's a great research project. Um, <laughs> For someone, a sad, sad one. They they tried to interview a lot of our elders in like the 90s. And they had to quit because all they would do, not all they would do, but what would end up happening is they would just cry. Mm. Talking about um, different things that had happened or, or folks they missed. Mm. So there's, yeah, there's a gap, <laughs> a big gap. Um, just and I didn't realize it I never thought about it you know my grandma would say oh yeah we're from Basswood and we're from White Iron or Burntside Lake and then only as an adult have I ever thought to question oh wait a minute why aren't we there now and I don't want to be jealous um because even if I had access you know to those lands which I think I do um because there's uh cultural sites I don't know how to get myself there. Um, I don't have a lot of skills. Like I said, I grew up in apartments. Um, the boys in my family, my cousins, they learned a lot more, but we were women in a modern society. So we didn't have to do as much. My grandma made sure um, I at least had some exposure because she, she gardened. One thing we still have strong though is our wild rice. But I always um, had my summers here and I lived here um, off and on my grandma and um, but really didn't have a lot of exposure to you know where food comes from of course it comes from the grocery store and never really thought about the actual system behind it 
um, until my mom, Denise Paradis, invited me in on her vision for Harvest Nation. And so when I started, um, I started looking at uh, the food sovereignty movement because I went to school for Native American studies. So um, I was uh, had a background in looking at um, tribal sovereignty and, you know, they put it on these like pillars of like asset building and all of this, but there was not a lot of food talk at that time when I was in school. Um, so knowing about tribal sovereignty and hearing that word food sovereignty, maybe Facebook or online, I started to do more research into it. And I got really, really upset coming to an understanding that our traditional food economies were of course disrupted with colonization and how, you know, we get commodity foods through the federal government, um, to reservations, and this has just been the history, and what that did to our bodies over time, but that, you know, all this pain and suffering around us could have been prevented, or just to know the very fact it doesn't have to be like this, where I got to worry about um, and feel, feel for my family that's losing their limbs from diabetes, and just crippling mobility, with um, diabetes and kind of just the whole spectrum of just how broken we are through food and that as a tool of colonization and feeling so powerless to really fight back on this you know grander scale so I know that this is multi-generational work um, to localize our food system um, and I'm really inspired by all of the uh, people out there doing work to do this because it's indigenous. We are, or used to be, kind of producers and consumers of our own cycles um, where it doesn't feel as fulfilling to go work for, you know, another business. Um, and especially around here, we have mining. And so for our family to kind of make it up and out of poverty. Um, our family has had to go against its traditional values and get into mining and extraction um, to level up a little bit. And we also see that with um, line three, um, that pipeline, there's a lot of native contractors that are making bank, which is great except that it causes conflict in our community. So I see food sovereignty, energy sovereignty, um, water protecting all of these ways as um, freeing up our community to, again, be those uh, producers and consumers of our own, own little economies. We have, used to have um, like bands of folks, maybe up to a hundred people and I think about how like hyper-local governance at that level, you could readily see who needed food within a hundred person community. Um, you could trade a little bit easier maybe with your neighbors and barter and each would be able to have fair participation in negotiating um, the value of the trade. Whereas now, you know, you go to the store, the prices are already set and the quality is not great yet you have to pay um, work over some bucks anyway. So that's kind of, 
you know, once I got my hands into the research and then looking at how, you know, food has been a tool to keep us down and out and sick, just the, I, I see it as, um, you know, a, a tool of weaponry to keep us down because if we're so, so sick, how are we going to come together to heal the impacts of historical and intergenerational trauma where, you know, we got a lot of addiction and substance abuse and my history is part of that story. Also, you know, if we're all, um, you know, stuck um, and demoralized and physically ill, how can we come together to, to heal from domestic violence? Um, how can we come to heal from, you know, sexual abuse, um, even just healing from the daily stigma of being um, and promoting um, Native rights in, you know, a predominantly white area. <clears throat> um, it, it is dangerous and there are real impacts of like sticking up for our, our values. Yeah, I think indigenous sovereignty and black liberation are linked and the impacts of colonization and white supremacy definitely continue to similarly affect black and indigenous people today. So I'm not sure where my people are from. If I had to guess, I would say West Africa, but I don't know. My grandparents were born in East Texas, and at least one generation prior to that was in East Texas. But as far as researching anything before that, it's all a mystery. Records either weren't kept or they weren't accurate. And I also think a lot of enslaved folks weren't raised by their mothers and fathers. So it's my family history is a little bit of a mystery, but my grandparents were in East Texas and like most black folks in the Jim Crow South, I'm sure like searching for like opportunity and safety. They migrated north, not too far, just about an hour and a half or two hours to North Texas, to Dallas. And so they moved there um, straight into government housing, the commodity food thing, fast food, food apartheid. So I didn't know this either. And it wasn't until my early 20s that... I noticed that so many in my community were suffering from food-related illnesses. My mom was sick, and I thought that I could cure my mom and my community with healthy nutrition, healthy lifestyle. And so that opened this whole can of worms of me becoming aware that um, access to healthy food, didn't really happen in black and brown communities. And that's how I got started in food justice and activism and really wanted to gain skills, really wanted to learn how to grow food. That was difficult or that was whitewashed or that was full of racist experience and wanted to learn how to grow food sustainably on a larger scale. I really wanted to learn how to be a steward of the earth. Um, I also went through this process of healing from centuries of land-based 
intergenerational trauma. And I was thinking that growing food was like gaining power and it was this revolutionary thing. I'm probably a little less radical now, but... um, (laughs) But with my past or still struggle, but I've been um, in recovery for a few years from the alcoholism and the drug abuse, just from the pain of, you know, some of the historical and intergenerational trauma, like, you know, those unanswered questions of how my people, you know, came to be here and how we've lost so much connection to each other and our identity and, you know, this identity crisis. Um, there, it's really hard. You don't have much to work with because, you know, our families without, you know, assets, our families are our assets. But what happens when our families are all struggling and all sick, but you miss a lot of work trying to help your family? So while you're trying to, quote unquote, pull yourself up on your bootstraps or we don't even have boots, <laughs> don't have the right tools or, you know, enough resources. I was reading an article titled something like, Black people or black farmers have been waiting their entire life for justice. (laughs) And it was referring to the new USDA program to provide debt relief to farmers of color, which seemed to be this like really powerful recognition of the need to right historical wrongs against black farmers and other farmers of color. But then federal judges in Wisconsin and I think Florida issued temporary orders to block the USDA from moving forward with these programs. And it just really seems that white supremacy will have you reversing any gains made by non-whites. And it really got me to thinking about the resistance and how black, indigenous, and Latinx folks have built solidarity and food sovereignty movement work. And, you know, slavery launched capitalism and turned the U.S. into the wealthiest country in the world. This is a nation built on stolen land on the backs of slavery and racism. So for me as a black farmer, as a black woman farmer, in an industry with a deep history of discrimination. When I say that I'm bootless, it means that I'm fighting really hard to navigate white dominated spaces and all the stairs and all the microaggressions that come along with that. It means that I'm faced almost daily with the inequalities of our food and agricultural system. It means that I've bounced around from city to city, from state to state, searching for credible farm work, uh, avoiding overt racism, avoiding being called N-words in rural and urban spaces, avoiding being referred to as a slave. It means that I, almost a decade later, am still struggling with land access, still struggling to build capital, I was hustling wild rice. I even traded wild rice one time for haircuts for me and my kids. We were looking pretty, pretty raggedy. Um, (laughs) But when, you know, you can't pay your bills or for housing, I don't, 
I haven't had stable housing. So um, I lived and moved in with my grandma and my mom when my grandma's dementia got bad. I had my own apartment, but moved in to help. My mom needed help with my gram. Um, but that was really special. We had four generations in one house and my boys got to know their great grandma more intimately. Although we lived with her before when I first moved back. Um, so with like, you know, the housing instability, the, um, you know, trauma of family, like when my, of course, you know, when your family hurts, we all hurt and you want to do what you can. Um, but there's so many struggles in helping family that have trauma um, and keep getting in situations of more trauma. Um, there's not a lot of hands to bring to the work. Of course, you know, with food work and growing work, you need a lot of labor. And a lot of our people, you know, there's still a lot of them are sick. Um, so it's catch 22, you know, even if we had the boots, even showing up consistently is troublesome when we're just, um, not healed enough to show up often. That's why the food thing, you know, once our bodies are, are better, you know, we'll be able to show up more often. Because it's one thing, you know, have a seat at the table. My friend Lila June did a quote the other day, or had seen it. She said, well, you know, diversity is having a seat at the table and decolonization is breaking that table and having a ceremony. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. I know, it's so cool. It's so, um, but even to have fair participation at the table, you've got to have, you know, the stability to be able to show up over time. And even your extended family stability to show up. Because if my cousin calls me and, you know, she was in the loony bin and they just let her out at like, I don't know, like 10 p.m. across the state. Because they had sent her from this hospital all the way to Thief River Falls and I had to go get her in the middle of the night. Um, I guess I didn't have to, but I figured, you know, that's how missing and murdered indigenous women happen. You let somebody out that might need more time in the middle of the night. And who knows? She could have just went missing. I was just really lucky to have found her at the gas station that she actually stayed there to go get her. So um, that's a lot of time and that's a lot of money too. You're paying for gas and having to go, go pick up your cousins out of jail or I don't know, things like that. It just seems, um, really hard to get traction or all these other buzz terms with the business when um, I barely have enough around me um, to be even supportive to my family because the needs are just that high. So even if we had the boots to be able to show up wearing them consistently, that's even hard when we're sick. Yeah. <clears throat> Maybe some folks don't even have feet to wear boots. <laughs> what is it about the Negro? I mean, every other group that came as an immigrant somehow, not easily, but somehow got around it. Is it just the fact that Negroes are black? White America must see that no other ethnic group has been a slave on American soil. 
that is one thing that other immigrant groups haven't had to face. The other thing is that the color became a stigma. American society made the Negroes color a stigma. America freed the slaves in 19, I mean 1863 through the Emancipation Proclamation of Abraham Lincoln, but gave the slaves no land or nothing in reality, and as a matter of fact, to, to get started on. At the same time, America was giving away millions of acres of land in the West and the Midwest, which meant that there was a willingness to give the white peasants from Europe an economic base. And yet it refused to give its black peasants from Africa who came here involuntarily in chains and had worked free for 244 years any kind of economic base. And so emancipation for the Negro was really freedom to hunger. It was freedom uh, to the winds and rains of heaven. It was freedom without food to eat or land to cultivate. And therefore, it was freedom and famine at the same time. And when white Americans tell the Negro to lift himself by his own bootstraps, they don't, oh, they don't look over the legacy of slavery and segregation. I believe we ought to do all we can and seek to lift ourselves by our own bootstraps. But uh, it's a cruel jest to say to a bootless man that he ought to lift himself by his own bootstraps. And many Negroes, by the thousands and millions, have been left bootless as a result of all of these years of oppression and as a result of a society that deliberately made his color a stigma and something worthless and degrading. That was a 1967 interview of Dr. Martin Luther King. So much has changed over the last 50 years, yet so much has remained the same. Earlier this year, I spoke at a conference and I shared a story of what motivates me, what keeps me inspired, and what keeps me involved in this work. So to close out this episode, I'm going to play a clip of that story. My goal was to keep these episodes around 30 minutes. So next episode will be part two of my conversation with Danny, where we'll discuss how she reconnected to the earth and we'll talk in detail about her work. Feel free to send me any feedback to Tiffany at MosesOrganic.org. Thanks for listening. So in the spirit of storytelling, I'm going to wrap it up with one of my favorite stories titled The Story of Agogo and Nangondo, My Destiny. Agogo, Agogo, she repeated as she pointed at me and back at herself over and over again. It was my third week of working with farmers in the rural village outside of the Machinji district in central Malawi. Each day, this vibrant little woman made it clear that she was the eldest, the wisest, and the one in charge. She was pure joy, joking, laughing, and teasing other farmers. Those men and women were much less than half her age, but they struggled to keep up with her in pace and efficiency. As she did throughout my time there, she was giving me a long-winded speech in Chichewa, not believing that I didn't understand her native language. This was my first trip to Africa with the Farmer to Farmer program. 
a skill share between farmers, scientists, and educators through short-term trainings and technical assistance projects. This meant working with those whose source of survival is dependent solely on the land upon which they live, those most vulnerable to, most vulnerable to and suffering the most from deforestation, pollution, and climate change. For me, there was something more. There was work in self-preservation, reconnecting, and exploring a stolen and erased history. In Africa, I was not the only person of color at work. I was not the black representative or the example of diversity. I blended in, escaping the oppression, misconceptions, and mistreated of black women in American society. She says that she is now your grandmother. You must call her a go-go, grandmother, said my colleague and translator. She is expressing her gratitude for the knowledge you have returned. Because of you, we will be able to feed ourselves, restore our land, and improve the fertility of our soils. She believes that you are one of us, a member of this tribe, but it was your destiny to be born in America so that you could return home to help when you are needed most. Prior to this moment, my journey in food justice, agriculture, soil stewardship had been filled with racial and gender barriers telling me that I did not belong. Although Agogo and I lived 10,000 miles apart and had met only a month ago, she taught me that I was welcomed, appreciated, and serving my purpose. It also happened to be my birthday that week. The best, the best birthday I've ever had, uh, not just because everyone in the village brought me presents. Maize, beans, okra squash, sugar cane, I got so many gifts. One of the aunties showed me how to properly wear chichinje. Apparently, I have been doing it all wrong. And then a go-go. She gave me a chicken, which is a really big deal in the village. She also gave me a new name. So Nangando is a stream in Malawi, and uh, Agogo described the meaning, which it gets a little bit lost in trans translation, but she described the meaning as returning to the tribe. Then we sang and danced. 